this is the first year that both of our boys are in the same school, which normally makes things really convenient. Except for when you've told your oldest son for a couple years, when you're in fifth grade, you can ride your bike to school. And he has a third grade brother who's not ready to ride his bike to school. And now, if, he's, if the older brother's going to ride the bike to school, the younger brother thinks he also needs to ride the bike to school. Which means on my day off, which is Friday, I'm getting up at 6.30 in the morning to go take a bike ride with the boys. And that's how I spent my Friday morning. And it was as much of a disaster as I thought it was going to be, and even more. As we left the house, everything was fine. We live on a little bit of a hill. And by a little bit of a hill, I mean you do not want to have to ride up the hill. But we didn't have to ride up the hill to go to school. We had to ride down the hill. Now, I asked them, do you want to practice with wearing book bags before we do this for real? And they said, no, we'll be fine. We should have practiced. As we were on the hill, nobody wiped out, thank you, but we were close. And then all of a sudden, a car turns behind us on the street, which isn't really a big deal. You just glide over to the right, uh, to the right of the road. The car clearly sees bikers. They're going to move over to the left a little bit. It's not a busy road. There's not traffic. It's nothing but houses. Everything's going to be fine except my youngest child doesn't move over to the side. He stays right in the middle of the road and slams on his brakes, causing the car to stop behind us, his older brother to look, shake his head, and turn on the road he needs to turn on to next to go to school. So I'm like, Ethan, stop. And then Dean looks at me and I said, you shouldn't have stopped. Move over to the side of the road. And then he starts arguing with me why he should have stopped. We are maybe 200 feet out of our garage at this point in time. And I'm already reconsidering pretty much every decision I've ever made in my life. And we've still got a long way to go. And then we just talk a little bit about how we need to adjust course. It's okay. We turn on the road. Ethan, our oldest, starts going. I'm kind of there trying to ride next to them, but he's wanting to move at a normal biking pace. Dean, the younger of the two, is behind us, and I look, and he's barely pedaling. And I'm like, buddy, you're, you're going to have to pedal if we're going to do this. I mean, school does start in 20 minutes, so we really, need to, we really need to move it along here if this is something we're going to do. Thinking in my mind, I hope this is something we never again do. And then I see it, and they're doing construction (laughs) on the road that we now have to take. And so there are cars parked from all the workers on each side of the road, and there is room for a single lane of traffic. And now I am trying to keep a cohesive unit of the Pursley men together in this line that is just wide enough for single traffic. And I'm like, just just keep going. Just stay steady. Hold your ground. My oldest, every time there's a break, goes over to the right. I'm like, stop doing that. We're never going to make it through at the pace your brother is pedaling. Just keep going straight. And then I look up, and it's like God just loved to mess with me on Friday morning because there is a giant construction roller just coming right for us in this single line 
of traffic. And I'm like, just hug it to the right, guys. Hug it to the right. There is no retreat, no surrender. And my oldest son looks at me and is just shaking his head. Like, you are so embarrassing. And I just love that we're at that point. And my youngest... My youngest is just like, what do you want me to do, Dad? And I'm just like pure unadulterated rage like his mother coming out of him. And I'm like, I, I don't know. So we go, we go up to the stop sign, and now it's the, the busy street. I recognize there's really no busy street where we live, but it's the busy street. So I tell him, all right, guys, I'm going to turn out first to make sure that if anybody dies, it's me, because to live is Christ and to die is gain. And now I really understand from this exercise what the Apostle Paul was talking about when he said that. Take me, Jesus. I'm ready to go. So I will go first, and then you guys swoop out, and then again, we're going to stay tight on the street and then we just have to pass a couple houses, and then we'll turn left onto the road that the school is on, and everything will be fine. And everything was fine until my youngest son, Dean, decided to stop pedaling again. And I'm like, you have to move. And he's like, I'm moving! And our oldest son, he turned, and then there was cars coming because people have places to go and also lives to live and they aren't prepared for the Persley family to have a bike trek to school on Friday morning and so we get a mother is behind us and I couldn't really tell that but because of the glare of the sun but nobody else has the patience that this car had it had to be a mother because she literally stops traffic so that we could we could go up to the road we need to turn on we turn on there we ride to the school I think finally the adventure is over. Oh, it's not. Because now there's a conversation of what do we do with our bike helmets? I'm like, it's, it's Sturgeon Bay. We're going to be okay. Just leave them on your bike. And if somebody steals them, they needed them more than we did, and we'll get you a new one. It's all right. Well, we don't want to leave our helmets on the bikes. We want to put them in the book bag, which is fine, except my son earlier that morning made his water bottle himself. He's in third grade. That's a big deal, except for the fact he picked the largest thermos we have in the house to put the water water on, which meant there was no room in his book bag for his helmet, and now we're having an existential crisis for five minutes where people have parked their bikes, and people are walking by me, hey, Ethan's dad, hey, Dean's dad, and I'm just like, hey, kids, what's up? Like, I, I don't know who you are, but enjoy the show that you're getting to see right now, and then finally, we just decide, we're just going to leave the helmet on the bike, and they go into school, and I'm like, whew, somebody else's problem for the next seven hours, thank you. And I ride home, and my wife says, how to go? And I said, worse than you can imagine. <laughs> and I told her everything that happened, and she just listened. And then she very quietly, when I was done, said, why didn't you just ride the bikes on the sidewalks? <laughs> I, I'm not aware that's an option. Like, I thought people walked on sidewalks, and you weren't allowed to ride. She's, she's like, I'll get them. I'll bring them home. I'm like, you go right ahead. You do that. Have fun. They were home in record time. <laughs> like, how was your ride home, guys? It was great. We rode on the sidewalks coming home. It was fantastic. Oh, the joys of being a father. <laughs> you know, I love, I, love getting to, I love getting to be a dad. I love getting to hang out with, with my sons. I love getting to teach them things. I love new experiences, and I love sometimes getting to learn new things. Like, you can ride bikes on sidewalks. I did not know that. Uh, but, you know, just getting to, getting to teach them things and getting to learn things. And, and it's, it's, such a, it's such a privilege, and it's, it's, 
it's one of the things that I love most about my life. And, and yet we recognize that, you know, not everybody has that luxury. And sometimes because of dynamics in families, sometimes because of death, sometimes because of other factors, people don't always, always have that. And as we've been looking, as we've been looking at the, the story of the church and how the, the early church spread and the hope of the gospel was spread to, to really the regions of the world, we've seen that God used ordinary people to do some really extraordinary things. And we're going to see that again today as we continue our look in Acts chapter 16. So if you have your phones or your tablets, I'd invite you to follow along with us in the Bible app. It's a resource that you can find in whatever app store you utilize. And once it's installed on your device, there's a feature within it called events. And there you can either enable your locations or type in Lakeside Community Church. Algoma will pop right up. You can follow along with us that way. If you have a traditional Bible with you this morning, again, we're in the New Testament book of Acts. It's the fifth book of the New Testament. Right after the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, then comes Acts, and we're in Acts chapter 16. If you're joining us via the stream this morning, thanks so much for watching. My name is Brian. I'm part of the team here at Lakeside, and we're so glad that you're joining us. The verses will be available for you on the screen below in just a minute when we dive into Acts chapter 16. But what we're going to see is that Paul, the Apostle Paul, who started out as Saul when the book of Acts started, and who was starting out as persecuting Christians, had a radical transformation when he discovered the hope of a relationship with Jesus. His life radically changes, and now he's all about following after God, and God does some really incredible things through him, and now we're going to see kind of a personal aspect and the personal side of the Apostle Paul as he takes somebody under his wing and becomes a father figure to them. And that someone just so happens to be a young guy named Timothy. And this is what happens in Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. So Paul continues the journeys that God has called him to go on, and here he arrives at Lystra, and there is Timothy. And Timothy is uniquely positioned. And why is he uniquely positioned? Because we've really seen recently as the hope of Jesus has spread and the message of Jesus has spread beyond just Jewish people to the Greeks, to Gentiles, We've seen that there are at times tension. And the reason that there's tension is because this is two cultures coming together. And there are radical differences. Radical differences. And, and we looked last week at, at how the gospel transcends any of those differences and how the hope of Jesus and the message of Christ is bigger than anything that would divide us. That it is what unites us and is bigger than, than anything that would separate us. But there's still these very real tensions going on because there are different cultures and different customs all coming together. This is new. This is fresh. And it's not always clean. It's not always easy. It's, it's sometimes a difficult dynamic. And that's what we have seen happening recently as we've looked through the book of Acts. And now we arrive where Paul is having an audience with Timothy, who's uniquely positioned, and the reason he's uniquely positioned is because his mother's Jewish and his father was Greek. Now, it's believed that his father is dead at this point. We know he's out of the picture. We're not entirely sure why. Scholars go back and forth on that, but most people think it's because he's, he's dead. 
And there's Timothy, who's been exposed to both of these different cultures and has an understanding. He was well spoken of. Timothy was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. And Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, if you joined us last week, you recognize that this would seem to go against all of the conclusions that we saw at the end of last week, that there was this tension between the Jewish believers and the Greek believers, the Jewish believers were saying, you need to be circumcised if you follow after Jesus. And the Greek believers, believe it or not, were like, I'm not crazy about that idea. And so Paul and Barnabas, who were Jewish, they advocated, they advocated for the Greeks. And so... Now, it seems that Paul's reversing course, but that's not the case at all. So then we have to ask ourselves the question of why would he circumcise someone when the chapter before he fought valiantly to say that circumcision isn't a big deal. What ultimately matters is the condition of the heart. And the reason is this, because Paul recognized the importance of people. Paul recognized the truth, and he fought and he advocated for the truth, fighting Jewish people along the way. We saw that last week in Acts chapter 15. And now here we are, and he tells someone whose mother's Jewish and whose father's Greek, who is uncircumcised, that you need to be circumcised, and I'm going to circumcise you. And the reason is not because that makes Timothy a Christian, not because he had to do it in order to follow Jesus, but the reason that he did it is because Paul understood that if you aren't circumcised, there is this entire audience of people who are going to just dismiss you. And they matter too. They're wrong. They're narrow-minded. But they still matter. And so if you're going to serve God well, Timothy, to the full potential that you could, it's going to require a sacrifice. It's going to require a willingness for you to do things that you don't have to do but that you should be willing to do to connect with the audience that God has given you. And as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. So Paul circumcises Timothy, and then he goes to all these churches and says, hey, by the way, you don't have to be circumcised. This is how much people matter. That when we recognize that every single person is created in the image of God and every single person has intrinsic value and intrinsic worth, and if we're going to love God and if we're going to serve people, it's going to require us to to make some sacrifices. It's going to require us to do some things that we don't have to do, but that love compels us to do. We're going to make some choices and we're going to make decisions and we're going to sometimes 
choose to not do things or to do certain things that we don't have to do. But that love compels us to do to serve other people. And it doesn't change the truth of the message. Because as soon as the circumcision is done, Paul and now Timothy are going to all the churches and they're telling them exactly what the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15 concluded. But this is done to unify the message of Christ. And so they go and they tell people, this is what was concluded by the Jerusalem Council. That you're to worship God. You're to honor God with every aspect of your life, including your sexuality. And you're to honor preferences and convictions of others. And this is a real example of what that looks like. And they went through the region to Phrygia and to Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to. So they have a desire to go proclaim the message of Christ to certain regions, and God tells them no. What? Do you understand what's going on here? There's a passion in them to go and to proclaim the hope of Jesus' places, and God says, don't do it. Why? Well, luckily we don't have to wonder for long. So passing by Myasia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, why did God prevent them from from spreading the message of Christ in other regions? The answer is not because those regions don't matter to God. They do. We know the heart of God is that every single person would make a decision to follow after him through a relationship with his son, Jesus. So why in the world would he restrict them from going certain places? And we're given the answer here. Because God has plans for them to serve in other places. That's the reason. Because God has plans in their life to go into different places. And God calls different people to different circumstances and different places. And God has a plan. It's not that God doesn't care about those regions. It's that God has a plan. And the message of Christ would come to them in a different way. But God calls different people to different circumstances and to different places. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her husband as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she 
prevailed upon us. So they now have an audience with Lydia. And, and she is challenged. She is challenged there to, to grow in, in her faith. She pays attention to what Paul says, and she recognizes that she needs to take the next step, and she's baptized. And this is continuing the theme that we see throughout the book of Acts, that baptism follows conversion. It, it doesn't predate it. The baptism follows conversion. We see that over and over and over again, and we're going to continue to see that as Acts unfolds. And here we see that she's hospitable. She's living out her faith. She opens up her doors. She's hospitable to them, and she's generous. And this is a great audience. This is somebody who's assisting the apostles in the work that God has called them to do by opening up their home. God gives different people different gifts. And what we've seen repeatedly throughout the book of Acts is that it isn't just preaching. It isn't just prayer. It isn't just you name it. But it's God using all kinds of different people with different gifts to come together and do what they can to further the message of Christ. In the same way that God calls people to different circumstances and different places, God calls people and gives people different gifts. And we celebrate that. And the church functions best when all of God's people are utilizing the gifts that they have been given to serve Him. And sometimes that's in some... some high-profile roles, and sometimes it's, it's in roles that nobody else sees and nobody else knows about. And sometimes you might even be thinking, well, I, I don't know what I can do. And here we see the answer is somebody was hospitable, and they were generous, that they have a role in the work of God, so much so that, that the Holy Spirit, through Luke, records this for all eternity. Now, here is Lydia. And she's faithful, she's growing in her faith, and she does what she can to serve. And as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation, and this she kept doing for many days." Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very hour. So right after we're introduced to Lydia, we're introduced to another woman. And this woman is, is functioning as a psychic. And we're also told that she's possessed. And she's oppressed because she has people that own her and that are taking all of the profits from, from her psychic business. And she's following after Paul and the rest of the group. And she's yelling out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Which is true. That's absolutely true. And she does it repeatedly and repeatedly and repeatedly for many days. The message isn't false. The message is true. And Paul becomes so annoyed by the true message that she just keeps yelling out over and over and over again. She's so obnoxious about it that Paul responds by casting the demon out of her. That's my people right there. Like, that's my people. He's just like, you can just see the tension building in his mind. As over and over and over again. 
And if you're like, what is that? What does that sound like? Hang out with a three-year-old for a day in case, you, in case you forget. And now multiply that by a couple days. And just, but they're stuck on one sentence, and it's just over and over and over again. And so Paul delivers her from possession. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans do accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them in prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So the people who were oppressing the woman are now mad because money's involved and their profits are threatened. So they go and they stir up trouble in the city. And there's a trial. And there, Paul and the crowd are stripped of their clothes. They're beaten. They're put in prison, essentially into solitary confinement, into the safest part of the prison. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Paul and Silas, they have been beaten. They have been thrown into prison. It's been a long day. And around midnight, what are they doing? They're praying and they're singing. And I think this just forces us to ask the question of how do we respond in difficult times? Because a supernatural God could have prevented all of that from happening. But he didn't. And yet they're not jaded. God provides an earthquake. Their chains are miraculously loosened. And the jailer is about to kill himself because he knows the prisoners escape, it's a death penalty for him anyway. Now, I don't know about you, but if I've had that day, and I'm now free, I'm getting out of there, and I'm hoping the jailer's quick about it so I can watch. Not Paul. 
He yells out, don't do it. And Paul sacrifices his own freedom for his captor. Because this is how much people matter. Even people that oppose us and oppress us. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The jailer had seen enough, and he recognized there is a difference in them. There is something real, and it's authentic. It it isn't fake. They've got the real deal. And whatever it is they have, I need it. Because we are not the same. What I see in them is not present in my life, and I need what they have. And may that be how we all live our lives. That we live in such a way that people would look at us and say, I need what they have. I don't don't understand it all. I don't have all the answers. I don't get it. But I know that there's a difference in their life. And I need my life to look, what to look like their life looks. I need to have in me what they have. And now they have the opportunity to present the gospel. And that's exactly what they do. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. You and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. They present the gospel, believe in Christ. Here we see it again. Baptism follows the decision to believe in Christ. He invites them into into his home. He feeds them. Hours before, he was ready to kill himself, and he was persecuting them. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us out into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come to Let them come themselves and take us out. Paul and Silas are issued their freedom, and and they refuse it. They refuse it. They're Roman citizens. They they had every right to have a, a real trial. They were refused that right. And now there's trying to be a cover-up. Now it's just, let's just push this one away. Let's just release them. Go quietly. We don't want you to ruffle any feathers. And Paul's like, nope. You want me to go? Come walk me out yourself. They refused to be pushovers and demanded they be respected. And sometimes there's this idea that following Jesus, when Jesus says, blessed are the meek, that means that we just have to let people violate us and push us over, that we just constantly have to be just trampled on by other people. And that's not at all what Christ meant. 
the police reported these words to the magistrates. And they were afraid when they heard they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. They received their apology and immediately get back to serving God. So what do we do with all this? Because most of us aren't going to jail anytime soon. Solitary confinement, going to be beaten. So what do we do with this? Well, I would say this. Whether it's prison or whether it's freedom, serve God. Whether it's blessing or whether it's persecution, serve God. Whether it's difficult or whether it's easy, serve God. When people receive you and when people reject you, serve God. When God calls you to the comfortable and the blessing, and when God calls you to a place you never saw coming and you would never choose for yourself, serve God. And that starts when we recognize the intrinsic value that every single person has. That someone was willing to be circumcised just so they could have an audience with people. That people were willing to stay in jail when they could have easily walked out the doors to spare someone's life. You want to take the first step in serving God? Serve those around you. Those that are easy to serve and those that are difficult. And recognize that you are where you are for a reason. And it's not a mistake. And God calls different people to different contexts to do different things. But it's all part of a greater narrative. And that we, get to play a part in what God's accomplishing. And so the choice for us is to always serve God. God, I pray that we would serve you well. I pray that we would recognize the contexts that you bring us in, the people you surround us with, We would love the people that we get to interact with. And we would serve them well. 
God, I pray whether it's easy or whether it's difficult, that we would have the resolve to serve you. Recognizing you have given us a number of different gifts and abilities and avenues to live and function as the people you've called us to be. And I pray that we would faithfully do that. And it starts, God, when we recognize the intrinsic value every single person that you've created. So I pray you let us see the opportunities we have to come alongside someone and to mentor them, to train them, to take them on the journey. I pray that you'd give us the opportunities to see the people that have oppressed us and and been rude or opposed us. we can still respond in love and concern. I pray for the person that's not really clear, really sure, God, of what they can do to serve you. And I pray that they would just remove all the self-imposed pressure upon themselves. Accept the gifts and the desires that you have created them with. And God, I pray that they would find natural avenues to love others and serve them in capacities that are fun and exciting and engaging. And God, I pray if there's a way that we as a church can come alongside of them and help them out, that you would help us find those synergies and we'd see you accomplish really cool things for your glory. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.